This is an ABC podcast. Australia must reckon with its settler colonial past and confront the mistreatment of First Nations Australians if we are to shape a shared future. That's the theme of this Big Ideas, which features three writers who've contributed to the Griffith Review Acts of Reckoning edition. Telling the truth about our history, including the frontier wars and massacres, is a big part of this reckoning. It includes asking some difficult questions about the role played by Samuel Griffith himself, the former Premier of Queensland, after whom Griffith University and the Griffith Review is named. So believes historian Henry Reynolds. For Aboriginal lawyers Megan Davis and Teela Reid, formal recognition in the constitution of First Nations Australians and a voice to Parliament is where we need to start. Professor Megan Davis is pro-vice-chancellor Indigenous at the University of New South Wales and a leading constitutional lawyer on First Nations recognition in the constitution. Teela Reid is senior solicitor at Chalk and Berendt and the inaugural First Nations Lawyer-in-Residence at the University of Sydney Law School. And Henry Reynolds, who joined this discussion via Zoom, has published more than 20 books, among them The Law of the Land, Why Weren't We Told, and Forgotten War. This conversation was recorded at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. Taylor, I thought I'd come to you. You're the contributing editor of this edition of the Griffith Review. In fact, this edition kind of stems from a, uh, an essay that you wrote back in 2020, calling for that year to be a year of reckoning rather than reconciliation. I thought it might be a good way of framing the discussion to begin with, if you can talk about reckoning and how it differs from reconciliation. Yeah, so... Uh, I'd also like to acknowledge that uh, the lands and waters we're on are, are unceded and pay my respects to any First Nations people here and elders. Yeah, so the original essay that I was asked to write back in 2020, I titled it 2020, the year of reckoning, not reconciliation. And I, I was invited as the contributing editor on this edition to kind of bring to the world a new collection beyond my own voice that might speak to the issue of reckoning. But where that theme came from was as a millennial, my life, my entire life really has been shaped by this notion of reconciliation. My education was, was really framed around, you know, the Howard era and the black armband approach to history. And that really shaped my outlook on life going through the education system. I, you know, witnessed things like sorry speeches or walking across the bridge and lots of tokenistic things that had been born out of this notion of reconciliation. And I think writing the first essay come from a point of frustration particularly having seen the hard work that went into the First Nations dialogues that culminated in the Uluru Statement from the Heart and its calls for structural change, I thought more about, okay, in terms of reckoning, to me, that is about dismantling structures and, and dealing with power and privilege in our society and not just tokenistic gestures. Mm. So that's kind of where the first essay and that informs from. very much the collection of pieces that's in this edition of the Griffith Review, right? 
Yeah, so this edition was really put to the world for contributors to, to write about what they thought their reckoning was. Yep. And what I thought, you know, a really beautiful theme that came through between the pieces of writing, particularly between First Nations writers and you know, non-Indigenous writers, I saw such a generosity in what First Nations people were, were putting on the paper, solutions to the structural problems that we face as a nation. And then as well, finally, you know, non-Indigenous writers were calling out their ancestors in their essays. And so I thought there was a nice dialogue of itself and a reckoning within this collection that finally we were seeing non-Indigenous Australians step up to the plate and critically think about what does reckoning look like beyond just the tokenistic gestures what we've seen witnessed in Australia. And, and Megan, as you write in your piece, the dialogues that led up to the Uluru Statement from the Heart rejected reconciliation as the appropriate framework to apply to Australia. You write about truth-telling uh, which the Uluru Statement makes clear should come after constitutional recognition, after a voice to Parliament. Tell us why this sequence is important. The sequence is important because there's, there's this dialogue, discourse going on at the moment that you need to have truth-telling before you can do constitutional recognition or you need to have truth-telling before you have a treaty. But... There's been no treaty in the world that has needed a truth-telling process first. And in relation to constitutional rights, like these are things... That sounds like my office. These are um, inherent rights that our people are entitled to. Um, you don't need a truth-telling process to be able to, to, to have those recognised. Mm. And the Uluru process, right, was about constitutional recognition. That's the offer that was on the table. The offer on the table was what form of recognition is meaningful to you. You don't have to delay that for a truth-telling process. What we heard in the dialogues was that enough truth-telling has happened, not in its entirety. There's a lot, there's still a lot to, to, to be said, and Henry can talk to that. But there's been a lot of truth-telling about what happened to our people. And what we saw in the kind of Hawke-Keating era was a kicking of the can down the road on our substantive rights for a confected and manufactured reconciliation process, not because truth-telling has to come first, but because of whatever political pragmatic decision they wanted to make or whatever political decision they made with Hawke it was, the election, the forthcoming election in Western Australia, the state election, they didn't want to lose seats there on the basis of treaty. So they contrive, a, mm. and you can see it in the Cabinet papers, they contrive a reason, and the reason is, oh... Australians don't know blackfellas, so they've got to really get to understand who Aboriginal people are and their history, so let's set up a reconciliation process. And you, you, we walked down that road for 10 years, get to the end of that, and the politics changes. We have a new Prime Minister, the Prime Minister that you grew up under, and when you talk about growing up under that reconciliation framework, he, they walked across the bridge, he's there, he says, nah. I don't want to do any of the structural reform or any of the constitutional rights. Um, I'm going to march down this citizenship road, the assimilation road, and I'm going to leave all of this to one side. And it took us till 2011 to recover. I'll come to you, Henry. Thank you for being patient. Speaking of, of reckoning specifically, your essay 
examines frontier violence and the frontier wars in Queensland. And I thought something we should deal with off the bat here, uh, a kind of elephant in the room, if you like, is that the Griffith Review, like Griffith University, bears the name of Samuel Griffith, twice Premier of Queensland, a founding justice of the High Court. And you write that Griffith sat around the cabinet table in Queensland when the infamous native police were brutally dispersing, in inverted commas, Aboriginal people in the colony. Remind us of Griffith and tell us what you think he was culpable of. It's quite clear that in the period that he was a, a leading uh, a leading member of the Queensland Parliament, that is in the 1870s and 1880s and into the early 90s, it was a period of, of maximum violence uh, as the uh, settlers, colonists moved into North Queensland, into Cape York, across the Gulf Country, and eventually right across to the East Kimberley. Now, this was, a, as I say, this was a period of, of great violence. It was largely violence uh, produced by a government organisation, the Queensland Native Mounted Police. And if we accept, quite obviously, that this was, uh, you know, a, a colonial parliament that was responsible for what was happening, we, we can't say that Griffith didn't know about this or has no sense of culpability or responsibility. Now, I took this issue up from the very fact that um, it was the Griffith Review. And it seemed to me there was a, 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 an extraordinary gap between what the Griffith Review said about itself and what the case of Griffith himself was. Now, the other thing that I think we are inclined to forget is that in the early period of colonisation, it was largely a British imperial venture. That is, the decisions were made in London and were imposed on the colonies by colonial officials, by imperial officials. Most Australians seem to think that that is the era that we need to think most about, about Cook and Philip and Macquarie. But the critical thing is that by the 1860s, right into the early 20th century, the responsibility for what was happening out on the frontier, all the frontiers of North Australia, the responsibility was democratically elected Australian colonial parliaments. This phase of colonisation is our responsibility. It is owned by Australians, you know, unlike the British period. And that's what makes it, I think, so significant. And it is an area where people still really don't know a great deal about it. Uh, you, you write that Griffith must bear an extra burden because he was a distinguished jurist who must have known how far Queensland had strayed from its proclaimed allegiance to the common law. Uh, Tila, there is a response to Samuel Griffith contained in this collection of essays, and it comes indeed from Griffith's great-grandson. Can you tell us about what he has to say about his esteemed great-grandfather? 
Yeah, so one of the pieces in the collection is written uh, by Sir Samuel's great-great-grandson, David Denenborough, and he writes a letter to his ancestor, Sir Samuel, and I think it's one of the most profound pieces in the collection in the sense that David really unpacks this notion and grapples with the fact his ancestor is is racist and um, has really built this foundation of a nation and systemically entrenched racism within it, within the systems. And he reflects on how he oversaw when he was in power lots of the things that Henry talks about that happened on the frontier and that he, you know, kind of turned a blind eye in many ways to those those wrongs. And so David, um, there's an anecdote when he meets an Aboriginal woman and she tells him stories of her Aboriginal ancestors. He's in awe of her and she turns to David and says, well, well it's about time you start talking to your ancestors. And I think this was one of the themes I saw emerge um, from lots of the elders around the country when they talk about truth-telling. Often the onus is always placed on us as First Nations peoples to step up to the plate and have to pour our hearts and souls out when in fact actually one of the reasons truth-telling comes third in the sequence in the Uluru Statement is because first hear us, recognise our voice, but, but you know, truth-telling is a dialogue and, and that means white Australia has to take responsibility in stepping up to the plate in that truth-telling conversation. Can I get you to talk a bit more about that, Megan? Because in your essay you peel back many of the layers around truth-telling and the various mechanisms and the commissions that have occurred in some parts of the world. But uh, you also make mention of the fact that this truth-telling can impose quite a bit on those people being asked to tell the truth. It can potentially re-traumatise and people are asked often to re-perform their, their traumatic stories. I think Tila's right. I think, um, I think the burden is pushed onto our people to have to tell their stories over and over again. The, the, the first thing that happened when we did the dialogues was we, we would go in and the first day was really taken up with Australian history, which I kind of feel like I wish we'd called it Australian history and not truth-telling, because mm -hmm. truth-telling just triggered a whole raft of international practice and writing on transitional justice, which takes us down a whole other track because people start thinking about commissions immediately, which requires our people to again tell their stories. So the first thing they said was, we've been here before, you know, how many times do we have to tell our stories? You know, the bringing them home, the report, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody, coronial inquiries, the list goes on and on and on. And what happens after that? And what, what we do know from transitional justice and truth commissions is often nothing does come after it. And you do end up with large numbers of First Nations peoples being traumatised by having to relive everything. And then normally, and I think this, from what I can see in the news and ABC with the Europe Commission, you, you, you put these truth-telling processes through a commission of inquiry statute and you start to constrain 
what mob can and can't say, and then the report, everything becomes about the report, and then everything comes about the recommendations, and then the recommendations are um, handed down, and then they're never in implemented, which is what we've found in both royal commissions and state-based commissions of inquiries. And, and our people are left to, to manage and deal with, with that, stories that are told and nothing in response. So the, 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 the sentiment through the dialogues was, you know what, we're not going to do that again. You know, we're going to talk to Australians about what we want through the Uluru Statement from the Heart, the actual one-pager, the call for action, the, the, the pitch to the Australian people as to why we want constitutional recognition. But, but don't ask us to pour our hearts out again, knowing that a couple of years down the track, there's not going to be anything on the other side. And, you know, we look to our brothers and sisters in Canada, for example, for truth commissions and nothing to come from that. I mean, they're telling us that they haven't seen any discernible difference in race relations, in the education of Canadians in terms of First Nations history. But you look at the wealth of material and empirical evidence we now have from truth commissions and the bulk of them leave victims and communities unsatisfied. So as a UN expert, I know that truth-telling is deeply entrenched and the notion of transitional justice is deeply entrenched within the UN's work. But the more I read over five years, it's entrenched because it's a way of member states avoiding having to do anything substantive. It's a way of Australia being able to avoid recognising substantive rights, like what we're trying to achieve through the Uluru Statement and why the rights come first and the truth-telling comes last. And just in addition to that, what we heard from communities was truth-telling happens all across this country in many, many ways, like the kind of truth-telling you just referred to. There's a lot of communities connecting with families of frontier... Are they called massacres? <laughs> frontier... Nobody laughed, but anyway. The lots and lots of families who have people that were involved in the killing times, reaching out to First Nations peoples, wanting to talk about what happened and their ancestors and how to make good on that wrong. But put that to one side, you've got communities working with local councils, communities having to put together all of these documents in terms of the history through native title and statutory land rights claims processes, what we heard from communities on the ground is there's a lot of truth-telling going on yeah. and, and they will choose at what time they want that information to be shared to a commission, but they get to stay in control of that. It, it's not going to be a commission that imposes itself upon all the many, many nations of this country. It's the nations who decide when they want to send information up to this commission. And, um, and I think that's a really powerful thing that came from communities that nobody talks about. Yeah. Um, because after Uluru, and even through the Ken Wyatt co-design process, nobody came to ask what was it that Mob said they wanted in those dialogues. Henry, if I can come back to you in these issues of truth-telling and reckoning, uh, the frontier wars and the First Nations people who fought and died in those wars, and you point out in your essay, at least 65,000 deaths in Queensland alone, the total number of deaths quite probably exceeding the deaths 
of Australians in the First and Second World War, just to put that in context, and you make the point these people are not, and the wars are not represented in the Australian War Memorial, despite urgings on the part of people like yourself. Uh, I just thought I'd ask, is, is the War Memorial or is the new government showing any signs of changing that position? And, and, and if not, do we need a new museum, a new truth-telling institution to tell the truth of these wars and, and those who died in them? Yes, well, I mean, to begin with, it's quite obviously that war plays an extremely important part in the way Australian thinks about itself and presents itself. Uh, you know, we, we spent more than any other country on commemorating the First World War. We spent $100 million setting up a museum in northern France to commemorate the work of the AIF in, in France, you know, in, 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 on the Western Front. So... It's not as though we don't want to talk about or commemorate war. In fact, it's extraordinary the extent which we do. And yet that makes it all the more peculiar that there has been no official attempt to commemorate in a serious way the frontier wars that, after all, were fought here in Australia about Australia, and they lasted for perhaps 140 years. Now, the War Memorial has... I mean, people have been urging this, going right back to the 1990s. I mean, uh, numerous people, prominent people, have come out and said, we think the War Memorial should indeed uh, begin to be part of this storytelling. And the War Memorial has continually resisted that, saying, well... Our legislation doesn't allow this. Well, that is that is very controversial and not widely accepted. But if they wanted to, they could ask for a change of their legislation and it could happen in months if they wanted to do this. There simply is an absolute resistance to moving into that in that direction. There are people now who are pressing the new government, writing letters to the new government suggesting they indeed put pressure on the War Memorial to completely change their stance and to use the big new building that's being constructed for that purpose. Uh, I don't know whether there's any movement within the government for this to happen, but there's undoubtedly this, this is a serious uh, move. But my feeling is that the War Memorial may already have surrendered its, its right to be part of this, and that that suggests that there should be a new national memorial in Canberra, and that if necessary, the War Memorial will get less money in order to fund a memorial that is about the frontier wars. And that would be another of the great national institutions if that was the way we went. But uh, at the moment, I think that's very much up in the air. Sheila, any thoughts about whether that would be a proposal worth following up? Well, I just was thinking something separately, actually, which was what Henry was saying about it being such a peculiar thing in Australia, this notion of truth-telling. I think Australians know the truth. They, if they don't know it, they feel it, and there's a real discomfort in this nation about wanting to, to confront it. And I think it comes from... 
it comes from this notion that actually we're quite a wealthy nation. We're quite a comfortable nation. Australians live with lots of privileges as a result of the frontiers and what they've benefited from. Why would people of the political elite especially want to disrupt that? And so I think that's so much why I feel such a sense of obligation culturally to commit my own advocacy to the Uluru Statement and, and this, this fight for structural change. The way I see it, a process such as a referendum is going to force every Australian to really sit down and grapple with some of these issues at their dinner table, at their book clubs, with their baristas, everyday conversations at every level about the rightful place of First Nations. And I think post the election now, one of the things is every single Australian is a campaigner, whether they like it or not. Our nation is being committed to a referendum. Everyone who has the right to vote is going to the ballot box. And that means every single citizen now has to think about what side of history they want to stand on. Because our nation is going to look very different on the other side of this referendum. And this is the opportunity to start to think about how we achieve those structural changes, how we finally deal with these foundational issues of where First Nations sit, and then the flow on from that, which is the sequence that Megan and her expertise has been about, which is this sequence, voice, macarada. And once we achieve the voice, this notion of Makarata, the coming together after a struggle, um, what the Yongle people gifted to this movement, is so much a part of the roadmap to reckoning and dealing finally with the truth. There's going to be no beginning and end to this truth-telling process. And Henry also alluded to, this is one of the things about creating our nation's story and our nation's narrative, and that's a responsibility on each one of us. Mm. Yeah, Megan, you say that ultimately truth-telling must come from the First Nations communities. Every single First Nation should choose how truth-telling should occur. You say uh, Uluru calls for a Makarata Commission to supervise that truth-telling and that this is a, a process that will be determined later. Does that give us much of an idea about what the shape of truth-telling post-assuming the voice gets voted up, what that would look like and how it would proceed? Yeah, it's just a different way of doing truth or history. It just allows communities to be in control and that's important, right, if we're saying they should have a constitutionally enshrined voice in the same way that the design of the voice should come after the referendum so that those voices can contribute, then so too should these voices be in charge of, you know, when and how their stories are shared. And they were very strong about that, about the fact that people don't talk to them first. So the National Congress of Australia's First People, straight after Uluru, there was a joint select parliamentary committee led by Julian Lisa and Patrick Dodson, and um, their submission to this in parliamentary committee, um, without even talking to anyone from the dialogues, was that we needed a South African-style Truth and Reconciliation Commission. And there you have a kind of representative corporation purporting to represent the mob's voice who immediately decide that this has to be a structured commission like South Africa, despite the fact that we know 
that many South Africans say the South African Truth and Reconciliation Commission failed for all sorts of reasons. But that's the importance of allowing people to have some control over the things that are done in their name. And that's why it's important that that truth that sits, as, as Teela said, it's called Makarata. It kind of popularly became known as Voice Treaty Truth, but it is Voice Makarata. And Makarata is that ceremony, dispute resolution ceremony, they're coming together after a struggle. And, and the two elements to that is agreement making, so what some people call treaty, and truth telling. And the truth telling is a big part of that agreement making. It's meant to be done in a supervised fashion and it's meant to be done in a way that's respectful to each nation so that they can decide when the time is right. And some of them said, you know, like a lot of them were critical of the Guardian's um, massacre. Killing times. <laughs> Interactive the, the, massacre. Yeah. Killing times yeah. series. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 And um, because, you know, a lot, ha- a lot of people weren't asked. And, you know, a lot of the TOs that we work with were like, I don't want my site on there. I don't care. Like, they're like, oh, we put the dot just a little bit off the... We don't want it on there. And so that kind of thing is really important to communities, you know, to control their stories. Um, And the killing times were harrowing. Yeah. Mm. The massacres. And that's the other thing. You know, I think lots of people talk about it as if it's some feel-good process. Actually, we're going to be very uncomfortable as a nation moving through this process. These are nation-building exercises that we haven't really seen in my lifetime anyway about our nation looking very different post a First Nations voice to parliament enshrined in a constitution is going to, to really change the way in which First Nations not only interact with governments, I think, but interact among themselves as nations. Mm. I mean, Henry would know this. Um, It will be a changed conversation because it's actually... I mean, it's interesting that idea about having a different institution for the frontier wars, but when we teach the frontier wars in our Indigenous Peoples in the Law class... I mean, you had editorials, like in the Adelaide Review and stuff, where people are literally, the editors are literally saying, this is in the 1800s, like, are they citizens of the Crown? Are they British citizens? If they're not, then the laws of war probably apply here, which means that massacre was probably fine, but if they're not, then it's not. It's probably murder. Like, there's, there was a lot of speculate. Like, there's a lot of material in Australia, where we're openly discussing this. Yeah, Henry, was, Henry writes about some of it in, in his yeah, essay. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, it's deeply ingrained in the Australian DNA, just like what Henry said about war, right? Yeah. It is deeply ingrained. And I think Australians, even the colonial parliaments, some of the reports, the parliamentary reports on the dispersals and the killings, like I think Australians, are, I don't think they fully realise that we, we were openly discussing it. It was a big part of who we well, are. Well, the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, as, as you remind us, Henry, wrote editorials condemning the killing by the Queensland Native Police of scores, hundreds of, uh, of First Nations peoples. You talk about the collection of essays, The Way We Civilise, uh, denunciating uh, frontier violence in the 1880s. And it, it, it really does beg the question, why was there not even at the very least an inquiry into what the native police were up to? Well, the, the, the discussion, I mean, the most important collection of material was indeed uh, contributed to the weekly paper called The Queenslander. 
over months in 1880. And part of this was due to the fact that the then Premier endeavoured to get a Royal Commission into the Queensland Native Police. And uh, he simply couldn't get it through the Parliament. As much as anything, that is the last thing they wanted. But nonetheless, in the, the, the debates and in the discussion, there was absolutely no doubt about what was happening. And uh, people, I mean, Douglas himself said, look, this has no real legal basis. Their purpose is simply to shoot people. Uh, and this is the premier of the colony. So there was a, a frank acceptance of what was happening uh, in colonial Australia. The debate wasn't whether it was happening. It was more about whether it is necessary. Is this, is this simply an essential part of colonisation which we have to accept? And if you don't like it, you should get back on the ships and go back to Europe. That was the sort of debate. It wasn't whether or not this was happening out there in the bush. Yeah, well, fast forward almost a century and you don't let the historians off the hook. You uh, remind us that a, a shelf load of history books were written with almost nothing in them about First Nations people. You mentioned Gordon Greenwood, the apparently very highly regarded professor of history at the University of Queensland, who vacated the chair in 1978. He edited a successful book, you say, that came out in the 1950s with almost nothing in it about First Nations people, given that, as we've just said, this was being discussed and written about in the 1880s, 1870s. How is it possible that mainstream historians were ignoring this in their books, books that were well regarded by other Australian historians? Yes, it's an extraordinary story. Uh, and I mean, I, I was given that book to teach from when I, the, when I first began teaching Australian history in North Queensland. And that was, that was just, as I say, that was, that was common. There was a whole generation of general histories written in that period in the 50s, late 50s through into the early 70s. And very few of them had anything much to say and in some cases, as with Greenwood, the, there, were, there was a mention of Aborigines twice, but only indirectly. There was nothing about, you know, the history of Queensland. And what any educated person knew in the 1880s had been very, very violent. And as I say, the, the, the debate then was about the morality of colonisation. And there were many people who were shocked and horrified. But this was this was simply disappeared from Australian history for two generations, and and that had a very important effect. It meant that when I started talking about these issues, there were two generations of people who had grown up absolutely shocked and horrified that this 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 was being talked about, and they didn't believe it. In fact, as you probably, many of you will know, uh, a book was written about the fabrication of Australian history that we were making this up, and we were making it up for you know, political reasons, to cause trouble, to make Australians feel ashamed of themselves, to wear the black armband, uh, wear the black armband as, as John Howard called it. So that it has been a long, long struggle to get back where we were in the colonial period. And I think coming off the back of what Henry's saying, it reminds me so much of what 
W.H. Stanner said, I think it was in the Boyer lectures maybe, around this being systemic issues, this notion of Australian amnesia and forgetfulness of First Nations and our stories and our truths is actually systemic. And it comes back to, you know, the founders like Griffith who, who omitted us from the nation's founding document. Um, and there are flow-on legal and political effects of that in the sense that there is no accountability in this country when there are wrongs done to us as First Nations people. And there's no wonder right now, not just the Uluru Statement, but the many petitions in the past that have called for systemic and structural changes and recognition of us as First Nations totally cuts to the heart of the moral issue that, that Henry, Henry speaks about. And I think that when people say, oh, well, what practical impact is this going to have, kind of what we have on the side of politics now of people like Dutton who, who want to see what practical impacts. Well, the worst thing for us as First Nations is maintaining the status quo because that's killing us. Yeah, I just think that, you know, the time we are at now on the cusp of having, and I wrote in my essay about First Nations women and matriarchs and, and the power of, of what those kinship circles do and retraced some of the moments in time that I think were extraordinarily profound and changed the trajectory of our nation. If you look at 1967 and that referendum, totally led by First Nations women, you know, beyond a decade campaign. Uh, then looking then as well, I, I retrace some of the land rights and native title work. And you look at people like Mum Shell, who's a proud Wiradjuri woman, did so much work, particularly within the Redfern area. And one of her first trips was to the Northern Territory to meet Vincent Lingiari on the frontier of the, on the front line, I should say, of, of the land rights movement. What we are failing to see is the power of First Nations women who are actually changing the course of our nation. And you can see in the Uluru Statement from the leadership of Megan and Arnie Pat, the, the hard work that's being done by First Nations women to finally right these wrongs. And having been born and raised in a matriarchal kinship, I think that was part of the reckoning I tried to, to grapple with in this essay. What I got, Megan, from reading Teela's essay was that a real sense, I don't want to put words into your mouth, Teela, but that the, the warrior women, the, the First Nations matriarchy had not been given its due. The important role it had played in, in holding those kinships together, as you say, of, of fighting the fight when perhaps fighting that fight was, was not as fashionable as it, as it might be today. Do you, Megan, do you agree that that, that that is the case? Oh, I think most Aboriginal women would agree with that. It's a Dorothy Dixer, really, isn't it? Yeah, I did my PhD <laughs> thesis on the exclusion of Aboriginal women from the right to self-determination. So, yeah, I mean, of course I agree with that. And, you know, one of the great untold stories in 1967 is that women led it. And women's leadership is often not recognised. Partly that's driven by the way governments see our people and the struggle and our issues. Governments, liberal democracies, liberal democracies are inherently patriarchal, so they're always looking for the men. And it's the same in, you know, many facets of life, whether it's historians or 
politicians, they're often just looking for the men. And so that's the importance of Teela's story um, or Teela's essay is that these stories go untold. And as, as Teela said, you know, a lot of the Uluru movement for the past five years, right, has been led by us, has been led by women. But I'm not sure that that's, what, that's the story that Australians hear. Mm. Henry, we have seen some small developments, I suppose, in Australia in response to the, the broader international movement, uh, the, the roads must fall, etc., cetera, uh, movement around the world and some, uh, I suppose, commentary written on Australian statues Some uh, other people would say vandalising of Australian statues, but also the electorate of Batman, uh, named after John Batman, was abolished uh, and renamed after an Aboriginal community leader and activist, William Cooper, you wouldn't want to over-exaggerate the importance of things like that, but do they show any progress, any moving forward in acknowledging some of the truths of our past? Well, one of the areas where there has been a great deal of, of concern and debate is in the universities. Now, this is particularly so in America, where some of the, you know, the greatest universities, like Harvard and Princeton, uh, and uh, Columbia and Brown, you know, the, the, the great Ivies have gone through a soul-searching about their links to slavery and the, uh, you know, the, the, the benefits that the, those institutions receive from slavery. And this is true also in Britain. I think Bristol and Liverpool, for instance, they too have, have come tried to come to terms with this. Now, I think that Griffith University needs to at least indicate that they realise that this is, a, this is an important issue. And it's an important issue in a way for their own reputation that they come to deal with it and look and see what many other universities have done. I mean, Princeton, for instance, has taken the name Woodrow Wilson from their buildings. Now, this is astonishing. Woodrow Wilson, you know, the president, the founder of the League of Nations, et cetera, et cetera. So there's, this, is, this is happening, uh, but in other ways, the universities are, you know, each of them finding a way to deal with their relationship to very, very distressing history. And it seems to me that Griffith is one that needs to deal with this. Now, it's up to them, to the university and the alumni and the students to debate this, at least to indicate that they realise they have a problem. Are, they, are these the kind of moves that we need to make in Australia if we are to progress? After the referendum, yeah. Referendum. After the referendum. Yeah. I've been talking to Megan Davis, Henry Reynolds and Teela Reid. Let's finish with audience Q&A. I'm going to apologise for the stupidity and naivety of this question as an white Anglo-Saxon, 55-year-old male who was born eight kilometres from where Captain Cook came from, so I'm going to apologise for that straight up. But uh, what's the end state that we want to get here? Is this about apologising for past atrocities or is this about tangible changes and, and real kind of changes in society for the future? And I'll say that as somebody that's lived in Scandinavia for the last like 15 years where there is still extensive uh, discrimination against the Greenlandic, against the uh, Sami in Sweden, in Finland, 
you, you used the, the example of, of South Africa earlier. You used the example of Canada earlier. What's the end state that we can get to? Because everybody will apologise as long as it doesn't cost them anything. So Uluru's statement from the heart, I think the way in which it was conceived and the reforms, the way in which it's structured is, is about assuming the apologies and all the kind of tokenistic gestures from government in, in favour of power, right? A redistribution of power so that our people can have some actual, use the word tangible, like actual structural power to make a change in our communities. And, and we leave the truth-telling for later, which bamboozled a lot of people, right, because mm. everybody thinks truth comes first. Still does. And still do. <laughs> and so it's, it's an interesting technique that Uluru, like the people who participate in the dialogues have taken in that people are happy to tell, well, not, not so happy, but happy to tell those stories and do the truth-telling, but only after there's this transactional thing, right? It's, it's, it's a very transactional mm. thing. So the end state, like, there is no end state. I mean, I, th I think that's the point. Yeah. Um, it is, will always be an ongoing relation, yeah, relationship because the land was dispossessed and there's been no, there's been no reparation. There's no real understanding in the Australian community about what that means in terms of first contact and that... The dispossession was done as, this is Henry's work, this kind of political economy of killing, and, and that's what the Australian nation was forged on, killings. That's how the economy grew, because these people were not moving off the land for pastoral industries and other things to expand. All you can do is come to a place where you have some agreement about coexistence and a way forward. And we've never had a government that is... Mm has said, look, let's, let's think about this way forward. Rather, we've done it. First Nations peoples have done it. We, we've come together, we've worked out this framework. We've said that we think, like, reconciliation is, a, is the wrong word. It's the wrong process. You know, it fits in Canada because you had first contact treaties and a pre-existing kind of relationship and it's about the restoration of friendly relations, but... That is not who we are in Australia. It's partly why transitional justice doesn't apply here because we're conflating this international confected theory of transitional justice with the original grievance and it doesn't work. That doesn't work. So people are going to be profoundly disappointed. Our people will be profoundly disappointed about that. The Uluru Statement is trying to get this back on track, I guess, in, in some ways. You talk to you know, Scandinavia and, you know, for 20 years, especially the past 12 years, worked very closely with the Sami parliaments in Finland and Norway and Sweden. All have kind of varying degrees of... I mean, each of the legislation is very different. Some have full autonomy, others have less, like Finland, which is quite weak. And then they have this kind of franchise act that the Finnish government wants to permit non-Indigenous people and do permit non-Indigenous people to run for the Finnish parliament, increasingly so as the Arctic kind of permafrost melts and there's industry picking, you know, picking up in those Arctic areas of Finland where the Sami live. So they're being inundated by all these non-Finnish like Finnish communities and other communities who all want to run for the Sami parliament and dictate 
you know, what's happening in terms of Finnish Sami policy. But they do have a very... I mean, I, I, this is connected also to the welfare systems of those Scandinavian countries. Obviously, the Sami have very high education levels and very high standards of living, much higher than here in Australia, for example. So in talking to those those mobs, I mean, you know, the, their Sami parliaments have... I'm pretty sure they will say that their Sami parliaments... Well, I know they would say they have empowered their voices. They're critical of them and they're critical of the government still and they're critical that they don't have enough, but it has enabled them to participate in democratic decision-making about Sami. It's enabled them to set agendas, not for a three-year cycle, but for a 10-year kind of vision of who you want to be as Sami. It's enabled them to preserve their languages and revitalise their languages. It's enabled them to have robust media Many, many things. I can go on and on citing the many articles of the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples and all of the things that kind of should manifest as a consequence of self-determination. It's not perfect and there's no end side. There's no end game. But it is about making people's lives better in the here and now and allowing them to plan for the future. Megan Davis. Dr Eddie Cabillo is the Associate Dean of Indigenous Programs and Co-Director of the Indigenous Law Hub at Melbourne Law School. Eddie's mic was not working properly, but this is a summary of his question to the panel. It's 31 years since the Deaths in Custody report was tabled. There's been 500 deaths since. Our women are the fastest growing incarcerated population. Our children are the highest incarcerated in the country. 18-year-old Indigenous men are more likely to go to prison than go to uni. The Family Matters report says that by 2037, Indigenous children in out-of-home care will triple. The Uluru Statement was a call to arms that was delivered to Australians five years ago. How can we expedite the emergency that is happening in this country and what insights and reflections do the panellists have after decades of advocacy and agitation by our peoples and the silence from the 97% of the Australian population? Good question. I mean, I think... Sorry to take over. I'm now taking over. It's the <laughs> Megan Davis show. No, I'll be, I'll be really quick and then I'll flick it to Tila, who works in the criminal justice system. But, look, the Royal Commission into Aboriginal Deaths and Custody is a really important report because it, it very much aligns with the aspirations of Uluru and The Voice because, you know, it did kind of two things, the Royal Commission... <laughs> Kind of the first part of the report is here's all, you know, Aboriginal people coming into contact with the criminal justice system. How do we protect them once they're in the system? Yeah, how do we protect them once they come into contact with police and, and, and then they're on? The, the second piece of work it did, and it was one of the primary recommendations, the second piece it did was to say the only way to keep our people safe is to keep them out of contact of the criminal justice system altogether. And how do you do that? And the core of the Royal Commission recommendations is about the right to self-determination. And the point that they make then, which is kind of really eerie when you read the report, the point they make then is the point that the Uluru statement makes, which is you've got to... The Australian government and its bureaucrats have to exit the space. Yeah, they, they make all of the decisions for us. They impose everything upon us. They do not consult... They've got it wrong for decades and decades. And I think this is one of the big things that pushes the support for the voices. Australians can see politicians are not doing it. They've proven they can't. Their bureaucrats can't do it. They've proven they can't. So what are we going to do? 
and the Royal Commission says put the power back in the hands of communities, give them autonomy over these spaces, things like health, education and criminal justice responses and all of the very many things that make up um, our people's lives and would enable them to live, you know, lives that are worthy of a dignified human being, all of the things that are captured in the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, that's what the Royal Commission said. And that part of the report is just ignored. Um, a little bit like the Little Children of Sacred report, right, that led to the suite of legislation known as the Northern Territory Emergency Response. You know, the report focused on... I don't know what they actually focused on, but they ignored recommendation one, which is the right to self-determination. And this has happened for decades and decades, just the ignoring of the substantive findings of so many, many reports. And one of the problems is, while we continue to not put power... I can see that, time's <laughs> up. While we continue not to put power in our people's hands, they just keep running commissions of inquiries and rural commissions and more inquiries and more commissions when... We know what the solutions are. Or it's also the promises to close the gap when we know actually the gap is getting wider in some areas. And I think you recognised the real urgency in where we're at now in moving towards a referendum and all those issues you talk about is critically what a lot of the people who participated in the dialogues were identifying about the importance of entrenching that voice for it to exist beyond political cycles because one of the things in Australia that people underestimate is the incoherency between the federal and states and territories and what they are responsible for. And when you look at the lens of indigenous, through the lens of indigenous issues, there is no coherency in this country around accountability when it comes to things like closing the gap because there's no mechanism for First Nations to continually hold those promises to account. They say, you know, they're going to do it that never gets done. So I think the most important thing you have recognised is really the urgency in two things, the voice, the and the referendum, and thirdly, you know, that's how we entrench the right to self-determination here for First Nations people. The speakers in that discussion were Teela Reid, Megan Davis and Henry Reynolds. They're all contributors to the Griffith Review edition, Acts of Reckoning. That conversation was recorded at the Wheeler Centre in Melbourne. More details, including a link to the Wheeler Centre, are available on the Big Ideas homepage. That's it for today. I'm Paul Barclay. Thanks for listening. Until next time, bye for now. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.